Hello there, and welcome to The Road to Nicaea, Christ, Creed, and Controversy in the Turbulent Fourth Century, part of the Earth and Altar Podcast Network. Episode 6, Maintaining the Martyr's Faith, Trinitarian Thought at the Dawn of the Fourth Century. Last time, we took a look at the Emperor Diocletian, whose administrative reforms brought the Roman Empire out of the chaotic 3rd century. We saw how he unleashed the Great Persecution, a devastating, if inconsistently applied, attempt to crush the burgeoning Christian churches that Diocletian detested. But the Great Persecution did not stop Christians from gathering to worship, or even gathering to argue about what to say in their worship. As much as Diocletian might have wished otherwise, Trinitarian thought continued to grow and evolve throughout this period. In fact, it often did so with a renewed urgency and clarity of purpose. After so many Christians had died for the name of Jesus, it became all the more important to explain who this man they had died for was. Now it's time to survey the theological players on the ground as our story gets moving into the turbulent 4th century. There are three different theological trends, or some people call them schools, in the early 4th century that we need to take notice of. Now a common rule in Christian theology goes like this. Every theologian that you read is going to be saying the same thing as everybody else 90% of the time. It's the other 10% where they disagree or modify or recontextualize what others have said, that creates the differences. And oftentimes, these differences can be massive. Each of these three schools takes up the themes and cautions of the 3rd century in very different ways. Ways that will pit them in conflict and alliance with one another. Let's talk about the first of these schools. None of these movements had a formal name at the time, which just means that we get the fun of making up names for them. I'm going to call this first group the Eusebii and Friends, because the two most important exponents of this line of thought are both bishops named Eusebius, Eusebius of Caesarea and Eusebius of Nicomedia. Unfortunately, both of them are going to be very important in the story going forward. Alas, the 4th century had too many people named Eusebius, and, as we'll discover later, too many people named Gregory. Seminarians and church history podcasters have been paying for this tragic mistake ever since. We're just going to have to try our best to keep them separate in our minds. From where did the Eusebii and friends derive their tradition? Well, their most important precursor was a guy named Lucian of Antioch. What do we know about Lucian of Antioch? Almost nothing, unfortunately. We know he was martyred in Diocletian's great persecution. We know that Arius will call his supporters co-Lucianists. In other words, Arius will say that his supporters are fellow disciples of Lucian of Antioch. We know that most of those who are unhappy with the decision at Nicaea will invoke Lucian as a principal authority against it. And that's it. That is all we know. If he wrote down anything, it hasn't survived, and we have no direct quotations of his teachings. But it shouldn't surprise us that Lucian was a big deal, because he was a martyr. As we discussed, veneration of the martyrs was very common in early Christianity, 
And of course, the Great Persecution left massive traumas in Roman Christianity. Invoking a beloved teacher who lost his life at the hands of a man many Christians thought was the Antichrist was a great way to buttress your own theological position. So that's where the tradition comes from. What did it actually say? Well, the Eusebii and friends tended to talk about the father and son in ways that emphasized the differences between them. Eusebius of Nicomedia liked to say two things about the son. The first is that the son was really and truly generated from the father. The second was that the son shared absolutely nothing, nothing at all, of the father's nature and power. So the father's generation of the son shares more in common with a wood carver making a wooden statue than with two parents creating a baby. The son is just not the same sort of thing, not of the same substance as the father. The Eusebii and friends probably liked these sorts of statements because they avoided any implication that the son's generation was material. Like Origen, and unlike Tertullian, they were very keen to avoid any kind of ooey-gooey flubber image of the Trinity in which the three divine persons emerged from some kind of primordial divine ooze. Besides avoiding flubber references in their theology, the Eusebii and friends also followed Origen, and arguably went beyond him, in emphasizing the son's subordination to the father. But, of course, they had biblical reasons for thinking that the son was subordinate. I mean, after all, Jesus himself says, The father is greater than I, in John chapter 14, verse 28. So wouldn't it be reasonable to assume that the son is on a lesser order of being. This is certainly what the UCBI and friends thought, and none of them expressed it more clearly than a fellow named Asterius. He was a rather scandalous lay person. During the Great Persecution, he had made sacrifices to the Roman gods to save his neck. The reason he was a lay person is that this made him ineligible for the priesthood. Yet he was apparently charismatic and well-connected enough to have a fair amount of influence despite this major black mark on his record. Now, Asterius explicitly says that the son is a lesser god than the father, and in fact thought this was a very good thing because it made creation possible. Perhaps a little bit like some of the so-called Gnostics, Asterius believed that the father was so powerful, so holy, so awe-inspiring, that there was no possible way that creation could bear direct interaction with the Father. So the Father created the Son as a go-between, who was still divine, but less unbearably so, and could therefore act as the mediator between God and the world. Now, in order for the Son to be an effective mediator, he must be able to communicate the world to the Father and the Father to the world, which does require the Son to be at least kind of like the Father. And the UCBI and friends acknowledged this. They were happy to say that the Son was the image of the Father. Some of them even went as far as to say he was the perfect image of the Father. Now, if the Son is the perfect image of the Father, really what that means is that we can trust that the Son will be able to show us the Father, just like you can see what someone looks like by seeing a photograph of them. But they disagree on how exactly this image works. Eusebius of Nicomedia said that Jesus was the perfect image of the Father in terms of his disposition. 
In other words, Jesus always wanted to do exactly what the Father wanted. But that's it. Jesus wants what the Father wants, acts how the Father would act, and the Father may have given Jesus special wisdom, power, etc. to fulfill this work as a mediator, but that was all the Father's gift. It was not something the Son had just by being the kind of God that the Son was. In other words, Eusebius of Nicomedia wants to preserve that profound difference in orders of being between the Son and the Father. But not everybody wanted to go that far. The other Eusebius, Eusebius of Caesarea, tended to say that the Son was like the Father in his nature. Not the same thing. The Son was definitely still a lesser God to the Father, but similar. The Son still had many of the Father's characteristics, things like wisdom, power, etc., albeit possibly to a lesser degree. Eusebius of Caesarea often talks about the Son's goodness and power as an overflowing of the Father's goodness and power, kind of like water spilling out of a cup and creating a small puddle on the ground. Or he'll describe the relationship between the Son and the Father as like a ray of light emanating from the Son. Both will illuminate you. One is a lot bigger and a lot more powerful than the other. So there is some room for disagreement within this school of thought. That being said, Eusebius of Caesarea does agree with the rest of his friends that the Son has a second kind of power that is different from the Father's. You can contrast that with, for example, Tertullian, insisting that the word simply is the Father's inner monologue personified. Now, when the debate is couched in these abstract philosophical terms, it can be hard to see what the actual stakes are between the options presented. What difference does it make if Jesus is like the Father or just a created image of the Father? So here's an analogy that I'm hoping will help. The Christological controversies are kind of like the different kinds of superheroes and the different powers they have. Some superheroes have powers simply because of the kind of being that they are. Superman gets his powers from being an alien from the planet Krypton. Any Kryptonian will have the same powers as Superman under Earth's yellow sun. If you want to make a Superman who isn't faster than a speeding bullet, or who resists the effects of kryptonite, you'd have to make a completely different kind of being. It comes with the package. Now, other superheroes get their powers from technology and gadgets, like, say, Batman. If you want to remove Batman's powers, it's easy. You just take his gadgets and the Batmobile away. What is at stake here is whether the Son of God is more like Superman or Batman. Does he have these seemingly divine powers because of what he is, or because the Father has loaned them out to him for a specific purpose? Eusebius of Nicomedia and his friends mostly took the latter view. The Son was sort of the Batman of the Trinity. Now, Eusebius of Caesarea wasn't going to say the Son was like Superman. He took more of a middle ground. For him, the Son was kind of like Captain Marvel. As you may know, Captain Marvel's powers don't come from the kind of being she is. She's a perfectly ordinary human being like us. Her powers come from being exposed to the Tesseract, and they are an overflow of that stone's powers. But now that she has those powers, they can't really be taken away except by an act of God. 
Eusebius of Caesarea seems to be trying to get at something like that, where the Son has these powers as a kind of overflow of the Father's being, something that is in contact with the Father, but is ultimately still not at all the same kind of being. Who knew we could learn so much about the Trinity from well-thought-out, timely pop culture references? We interrupt this podcast to bring you an emergency public service announcement. This just in, The Road to Nicaea is now brought to you by Hackneyed Pop Culture References. Has your preacher begun to phone it in? Not too clever for their own good? Know the warning signs today. If you hear sermons full of barely relevant pop culture trivia, if your worship is peppered with barely funny puns, if your minister dresses and talks like a parody of a youth pastor, then they may be suffering from chronic sermon giving. The average preacher tries to proclaim the word faithfully. However, the pressures of coming up with an original message every week can wear on even the most creative of minds. If you suspect your preacher has run out of ideas, contact your local church authorities today. Happy Pop Culture References. Take Obi-Wan Kenobi's advice and don't try it. So, that's the first school of thought. You can see that the Eusebii and friends are really keen to emphasize the difference between the Father and the Son. They really, really want to make it clear that these are two separate things, two hypostases in Origen's language, and that there are a lot of differences between the two of them. The other two schools of thought that we'll be talking about are much more keen to emphasize the similarities between Father and Son. Now, one of these movements traces its origins to Marcellus of Ancyra. Ancyra is the ancient name of the city of Ankara, the modern-day capital of Turkey. Little is known about his life, but we do know that he was bishop of Ancyra for a time and demolished pagan temples during his tenure. But the absolute most important thing we know is the fact that, unlike the Eusebii, he had the good manners not to agree theologically with anybody else who shared his name. There is only one Marcellus you have to worry about in this story. Unfortunately, that's mostly because Marcellus didn't agree with most everybody. Do you remember when we were talking about third century Trinitarian thought, and I kept saying that almost everyone wanted to avoid being called a modalist? Marcellus of Ancyra is the reason that I had to hedge my bets and say almost. Marcellus inaugurated a way of speaking about the Trinity that pretty much everybody else thought was modalistic. Now, Marcellus furiously denied this charge, but it would stick for a very, very long time. One of the big reasons Marcellus was called a modalist is because he liked to say that God was one hypostasis, that is, only one independent thing, rather than the three advocated by Origen and many others. Now, to buttress this claim, he drew on Tertullian's idea that the word is God's faculty of reasoning and speaking. Now, unlike Tertullian, Marcellus doesn't want to say that the Father and the Son are two distinct beings. He takes Tertullian's analogy perhaps more literally than Tertullian did, and said that the Son is a faculty of God, the very power of reasoning and speaking of God, and it, quote, goes out, unquote, from God in creation alongside the Spirit. Now, Marcellus originally said that the Son and Spirit would go back into the Father at the end of time, just like before creation. Now, if that idea sounds kind of vague or unformed to you, you are not alone. 
Marcellus is one of the hardest of early Christian thinkers to follow. It's not always clear what terms he's using in a technical sense and which he's using more loosely. He also has a lot of dramatic rhetorical flourishes in his writing that he's clearly very proud of having thought of, but it doesn't really help you understand what he's trying to say. So, for example, he'll proclaim that God is the monad which expands to form a triad while in no way allowing itself to be divided. That doesn't make a lot of sense on its face, since of course you can divide a triad. There are three things in a triad. That's what the definition of a triad is. So Marcellus will then come back to this claim and will elaborate on it by saying the Godhead expands in energy alone. What is this energy which expands in God? Electric power? Some kind of divine activity? Vibes? It's really unclear. The best interpretation of Marcellus that I have come across suggests that the reason Marcellus is so confusing is because he understands the human mind differently than most other people. He seems to have thought that the faculties of the mind, things like emotions, intellect, will, memory, etc., those are real things that exist within the greater whole of the mind. Now, they aren't hypostases because they don't have independent existence. If I dropped out of existence, my will and my intellect would stop existing too. But they are distinct things from one another. And so Marcellus thinks that he has found a way to say that the Father and the Son are distinct things while still arguing that there is only one God, one hypostasis. If we were going to compare this to a comic book character, I think the closest analogy would be Brainiac, the constant foe of Superman who can shrink down whole cities and contain them within his vast, superpowered brain. Different distinct things, all within the same mind. Brainiac is not a particularly appealing comic book character, and this idea was not terribly appealing to most of the other theological schools. When they heard that God was just one independent thing, they heard modalism, and Marcellus would eventually be kicked out of his bishopric precisely because of this theology. But he still had a following, and his theology would prove surprisingly durable. His position is sometimes described as monarchian, from the Greek mon for one, and arche meaning source or principle or beginning. Though Marcellus's life was a turbulent one, in some ways he got the last laugh. His followers would endure until at least the 370s, and many of his key ideas last far longer than that. The idea of the Father as the sole principle of origin in the Godhead is one that will make its mark on Nicaea and one that we still argue over today in the form of the notorious filioque clause. So much for Marcellus and his followers. Now let's talk about the third of our theological movements. This particular movement gets linked with the city of Alexandria because its two biggest proponents, Bishop Alexander and his successor Athanasius, both lived there. But it had support throughout the empire. The group had particularly strong followings in Greece and Syria. I'm going to call them the Homoousians and Friends because the most defining feature of this group, and what really sets Arius and the Eusebii against them, is their use of the adjective Homoousius to describe the relationship between the Son and the Father. So what does this word Homoousius really mean? 
Well, it is a Greek phrase that is most literally translated as of the same substance, though you'll also hear translations like of one being or consubstantial, which isn't so much a translation as just a transliteration from the Latin translation. You may remember that word substance from Tertullian and Origen that we've been talking about here. Just as a brief refresher, substance is quite literally the stuff out of which one is made, and members of the same species have the same substance. I am, quite amazingly, of the same substance as musical icon Brandy Carlyle and acting legend David Tennant. I am not of the same substance as a red panda or an angel. So to say that the son was homoousius with the father was to endorse the Superman model of Trinitarianism. The son has all his divine qualities, things like eternity, glory, omniscience, omnipotence, etc., because he is fully divine. They are an inevitable consequence of the kind of being that the son is. Just as a human father and a human son are similar on the basis of being the same kind of thing, with the same basic powers and weaknesses, so the divine son and father are. Now, we've talked a bit about how the Eusebii and friends are very worried about the materialistic connotations of language of substance. The homoousians and friends were not as worried about this. Over a hundred years have passed, more or less, since Tertullian wrote, and in that time, the Stoic philosophy he championed had fallen out of favor. The dominant worldviews of the 4th century all pretty much agreed that God didn't have a material body, so you could use language like homoousius without being thought of as a materialist. Or, at least so the homoousians thought, the Eusebii and friends probably disagreed. What was appealing about this language? Well, it allowed theologians to emphasize the similarities between father and son to the absolute highest degree possible. Homoousians loved to emphasize the correlative nature of terms like father and son. So of course the son is generated by the father in some way, but on the other hand, a father doesn't become a father until the instant he has a son. Father and son are correlative terms. Each one is defined by their relationship with the other. In other words, there is no reason to think, as the Eusebii seem to, that the son has to be a different kind of thing than the father just because the father made him. After all, in a particular sort of way, the son also made the father. And, of course, the Homoousians also thought there were good reasons to believe the son and the father were very similar. They had several biblical passages they would regularly turn to to prove this, but one of the most important is Wisdom chapter 7. Here are a few verses of this chapter. For wisdom is a breath of the power of God, and a pure emanation of the glory of the Almighty. Therefore nothing defiled gains entrance into her. For she is a reflection of eternal light, a spotless mirror of the working of God, and an image of his goodness. Although she is but one, she can do all things, and while remaining in herself, she renews all things. In every generation, she passes into holy souls and makes them friends of God and prophets. Now, remember what I said a few episodes before. Pretty much everybody in this time period thinks that you can interpret the scriptures allegorically. Wisdom is a part of the Old Testament that today gets classified as one of the apocryphal writings, and it probably didn't have Jesus explicitly in mind. 
But the New Testament calls Christ the power and wisdom of God. So early Christians thought that whenever we're talking about wisdom in the Bible, we are talking about Jesus, at least implicitly. And what do we say about wisdom here? Well, that she is a pure emanation of the glory of the Almighty, a spotless mirror of the working of God. She can do all things and renews all things. That sure sounds a lot like God. Now, another thing you might notice is that wisdom has an intermediary role between God and creation. She is what makes holy souls into friends of God. The Homoousians and their friends agreed with this. It was actually a point of commonality between them and the Eusebii and friends. Everybody agreed that the second person of the Trinity, whether you call it Son or Word or Wisdom, acts as the go-between for the Father and creation. The difference is why that intermediary role exists. For the Eusebii and at least some of their friends, it's because creation needs a less awesome, less almighty divine mediator in order to endure the touch of the Father. The Homoousians deny this. They think that the Son is basically like the Father in every respect, except that the Son was generated by the Father. And the Homoousians will push this similarity as far as they possibly can. Just as the Father is incomprehensible to us, so the nature of the Son's generation is incomprehensible to us. He wasn't created in a way that other things were created. Proving that the Eusebii aren't the only ones who can appeal to shadowy traditions almost entirely lost to history, the Homoousians will ground their tradition in a guy named Theognostus of Alexandria. In addition to having a truly impressive name, Theognostus explained the relationship between the Son and the Father thus. The essence, or ousia in Greek, of the Son is not derived from outside, nor was he produced out of nothing, but issued from the essence, ousia, of the Father, like radiance from light and like vapor from water. For neither the radiance nor the vapor is the water itself or the sun itself, nor is one alien to the other. So too the nature of the sun is an outflowing of the Father's essence. You can see how the Homoousians are almost breaking language to make their point. They want to describe two things that are not the exact same, but are so intimately related to each other that you can never find one without the other. I personally like to use the example of a charged particle and an electric field. All charged particles generate electric fields just by virtue of being what they are. But they aren't the same thing. In fact, sometimes particles and fields exchange energy with each other, which of course can't happen if they're the same thing. But this imagery is very difficult to conceptualize, and it is easy to be accused of modalism. After all, aren't water and vapor just two forms of the exact same thing? The Eusebii would say yes to this and cringe. The Homoousians would say no in indignation. And Marcellus of Ansira would probably say, well, yes, what's the problem? Here, come look at this super complicated faculty psychology I made up so I could give punishingly intricate ramblings about my super non-modalistic theology. And everybody else probably wished that Marcellus would just stop talking. Now, 
Before we take a look at how all of these theological movements argued and allied and fought with each other, I want to briefly touch on a question that some of you have probably been asking for a while now. Why can't everybody just get along? After all, if God is ineffable and mysterious, then none of our doctrines can be perfectly accurate, so surely all of the thinkers we have just discussed are trying their best. Why couldn't they, and we, just accept the rich diversity of symbols and metaphors that each school used, and be content to let the diversity flourish? It's a complicated question that probably deserves its own podcast. But there are a couple of things going on that I want to at least point to. The first is what I said in the introduction, that religion and politics are not really separable from each other. Each of these schools has their own distinctive personalities and geographic bases. Then, as now, people from different regions don't always get along, and often feel that outsiders don't understand their distinctive culture and practices. Even within a single region like the American South, you can find long-standing feuds over things like how to make the best barbecue sauce. Now, those don't usually boil over into open hostility. But they can, especially when other stressors are present. And even when hostility is contained, the underlying tension is still there. You can understand that Alexandrines following Bishop Alexander's theology might have resented a Bethanian friend of the Eusebii saying, well, actually... You're a little wrong there. The son doesn't have the same power as the father. It's really just a different power, just, just kind of similar. But an Alexandrine would not have just seen the Eusebii's philosophy as just insulting to their regional traditions. They would have seen it as insulting to God. Let me explain this by way of a story. I once heard of a man's funeral where the preacher, who did not know the family of the deceased very well, began the sermon by standing up and saying, Jerry has been freed at long last from his illness and has joined his mother, father, and sister in heaven. Now this sermon did not go over particularly well because Jerry's sister was sitting right there in the pews, very much alive and well, very much not in heaven. Of course the preacher had good intentions and did not mean to offend anyone. And yet the preacher's job was to know the deceased and his family well enough to not make mistakes like that. In church, the goal is not just to express our own feelings and thoughts. It's to honor those about whom we speak. In that part of the funeral sermon, the honoree was the deceased and his family. In most of church liturgy, it's God. And so the priest's and theologian's job is to speak about God in a way that glorifies God. The problem that these schools had with each other was not just that they spoke in different ways. The problem was that they were worried that some of these ways of speaking were disrespectful. It's all well and good that Marcellus of Ansira thinks that God is one hypostasis and the Son and Spirit are just faculties of God. But if the Son and Spirit are distinct hypostases, real persons with independent existence, then it's not terribly honoring to ignore that fact. Alexander can say that the Son is the wisdom of the Father, but if the Father has his own kind of wisdom, thank you very much, then it's theological malpractice to ignore that fact. 
And of course, if the Son really is of the same substance as the Father, it's colossally insulting to keep talking about how different he is from the Father. What's more, every single one of these schools of thought believe that God had revealed these Trinitarian relationships to us in the Bible. And so, when a theologian gets them wrong, they show that they haven't listened to what God said clearly enough. In other words, Christians want to respect God, and one of the ways that theologians show that respect is by trying to speak as accurately of God as possible. For the Christians of the 4th century, goodwill wasn't enough to ensure that your speech was acceptable, and so they fought about what was right. We will also not fully understand these conflicts without remembering that they occur in the aftermath of the Great Persecution. Christian communities all over the Roman Empire were traumatized by this. Each of the schools we have discussed was impacted by the systemic terror and death wrought by Diocletian's policies. The previous generations of Christians had suffered and died for the name of Jesus of Nazareth. The idea that other theologians were speaking of Jesus in ways that defamed him, or that dishonored the unique glory of the Father whom Jesus called his God, was absolutely anathema. Add to the same time the fact that Christianity had been exploding over the course of the 3rd century, and perhaps you can see why questions of theology were such a high-wire act. There were more Christians than ever before. The church was growing, and the church seemed under threat from forces both within and without. We look back 17 centuries later, once all of the live questions have been resolved, and we might wonder what all the fuss was about. That is the privilege of living in a time and place whose fundamental questions are very different. And, of course, there's one man who concentrated all that controversy and fuss around himself, and concentrated it like no other. Arius of Alexandria, longtime cleric, arch-heretic, and also apparently a rather good composer of sea shanties. It's time to turn our gaze to him. Where did he fit within these theological trajectories we've explored? Why was he alone such a lightning rod for controversy? And how did he come to gain the personal attention of the all-powerful Roman Emperor? All that and more next time, as we come to what many consider to be the main attraction on the road to Nicaea. Thanks for listening to The Road to Nicaea. We need your help to spread the good news that detailed, humorously narrated content on ancient drama is available to all. Please take a moment to review us, like us, and subscribe to our feed. Your feedback will really help us improve our content and appease the merciless podcast algorithm gods. What could be better? So for their sake, as well as for the podcasts, please review, like, and subscribe. Thank you. This is an Earth and Alter Podcast Network production. For more podcasts and weekly articles, visit us at earthandaltermag.com.